whether it's high school or college or the tech school or whatever you might go to or graduate from, you don't get to pick your own path uh, except within certain boundaries. Uh, If Bo is going to get an engineering degree, he's going to have to take engineering classes. Uh, You can't get an engineering degree taking music classes or vice versa. And you have to fulfill the course of study. I want to talk to you today about God's curriculum path in the way of service. We've been talking about having consecrated lives, lives that are dedicated to God. Well, God says there's a path to being consecrated, to being a servant for Him. And that path is the word faithfulness. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 19 today and learn some things about faithfulness which is what we must be doing if we want to be consecrated servants. And I want to start with a a definition. This is something that I honestly, as much as I've used the word faithfulness over the years, I've never stopped to say, how would I define that, the way that it's used in the Bible, the way that it's used in, in the context of being a servant of God? And I believe this is a good definition. Faithfulness is the quality of how well we carry out God's desires for us. I think you'll understand that more as we study this passage today. Luke 19, starting in verse 11. Now as they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now if you don't understand that context, Jesus had been going about his ministry for three years, the common people were beginning to think, this is the man we've been waiting for to be the Messiah. And so as he's literally physically walking toward Jerusalem, they think this is it. He's going to go to Jerusalem. This is the seat of authority. He's going to stand up and say, I'm the Messiah. That's the context in which this parable was given, and it's important. You'll see that in a minute. Verse 12 Because of this thinking on their part, therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and he delivered delivered to them ten minas and he said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful over a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second one came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And the ruler said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I do not deposit, reaping what I do not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, 
that at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said, Master, he has ten minas. (laughs) He already has ten. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and to him who does not have, even from what he has, will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine, the citizens, who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. This is a giant illustration of faithfulness. Maybe I shouldn't use the word giant. It's a large illustration of faithfulness. And it's meant to teach the people of God, the servants of God, the apostles in this case, primarily, and then us by extension, something about the time frame until he comes back to set up the kingdom. All of the people were going, he's going to set up the kingdom. He's going to do it. I know it's going to happen now. And he essentially says, it's not going to happen now. Here's what's happening. I'm going away to receive the authority to rule the world. And when I come back, I'm going to do that. Now, while I am gone, this is what is supposed to be happening. And he talks about a noble man. Uh, verse 12, it literally means somebody of who is well-born. In that day, you were either born into an upper-class family or you were born into a slave family. There wasn't really a middle class, per se. This was a noble-born man, a well-born man, a man with money and power. He had servants. In the day, a person charged with managing somebody else's possessions, was often called a steward. Here they're called servants. The word steward literally means a manager. The word mina in the New King James, or mina, as I, trans, as I read it, it's from the Greek word which is written this way, M-N-A. <laughs> that doesn't come into English very well, and so they made the word mina. I believe in your, your New International, it's trans, or the King James translates it pound because it had to do with a weight of money, which was almost 16 ounces. So, you know, we would look at that and say, what's a pound of money? Okay, well, a pound of money, if you do all of the historical research and extrapolate it out, it would equal approximately three months' wages. Okay. And if you remember one of the other things that's mentioned in a parable of Jesus, a talent, a talent would have been equal to 60, perhaps, of these pounds of money. So here, let's just set the wage, a monthly wage, at $3,000. Some of you think, wow, I'd love to make $3,000, and some of you think I'd starve on $3,000. But we're just going to pick a figure. We could have picked any figure. $3,000 a month. These servants were given... In our way of thinking, $9,000. They were given $9,000 to do business with. He said, here is $9,000. I'm going away. While I'm gone, you do business for me. The word trading is used later on. Um, And so, obviously, they would have bought and sold. uh, However, they might have done that. When the owner returned, he came to hear the financial reports and to give rewards accordingly. So how does that illustration correspond to us? Well, verse 11, in verse 11, we know that Jesus is talking about the kingdom because the people were talking about the kingdom of God. 
If you're not familiar enough with your Bible to understand, there are two elements to the rule of Christ in the world. There is the ultimate, literal, absolute, political, spiritual kingdom, which will come yet in the future. That's the one they were looking for. They weren't looking so much for the spiritual elements of it because they weren't aware of the whole truth of God as they should have been. They were primarily thinking there is going to come a king who will bring righteousness and Jerusalem and Israel will be the top of the world, and we're looking for that. That element is still coming. But there is another element of the rule of Christ in which he rules our lives day by day, and both of those elements are alluded to here. First of all, they thought that the kingdom was going to come, but no, it's not going to come. But he exerts influence over them, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, And he says, while I am gone physically, you who are my servants have a responsibility to use the things that I have given you in such a way as to bring an increase. So what are the instructions of faithfulness that we see here? If faithfulness is the quality of how well we carry out God's desires, what are the instructions in that faithfulness that we learn in this parable? Number one, faithful servants understand that Christ has entrusted us with his valuables so that we might make an increase for him. That's kind of an odd word to use about God, his valuables. I could have used the word his possessions. He possesses how much? Everything, okay? But there are certain valuable things that he has deposited with us. In the illustration, the only valuable thing he talked about was money. This this parable is not primarily about how we handle money. This parable is about how we handle the things that God has deposited with us if we call ourselves the servants of God. And, And in our study in these four weeks, that's what we're trying to understand is what does it mean to be a servant of God? Well, it means that I understand that Christ has left some things with me that are extremely valuable. And he expects me to use them to bring an increase. What are those things? Well, one of them is the word of God. Okay, And, and I don't know if these are in priority order or what order. They're just in the order that I thought of them, but there's nothing much more valuable than the word of God. It is what changes lives. It is what teaches us the gospel so that we can be saved and go to heaven. Uh, it, is, it is the whole basis of our, our life. And he's left this, and this is valuable. He's also left us the spirit-filled life. And in particular here, I'd like you to think about the element of a spiritual gift. The spirit-filled life includes a righteous life. It includes all aspects of the Christian life. But there's also an element in which Christ has given us an ability to serve him. So all kinds of service that goes on in the church on a Sunday. Everything from opening a door, to helping somebody physically, to teaching a class, to uh, leading in music, to setting up the welcome room. There's all kinds of ministry that goes on based on how God has put us together as a body. That is a valuable thing that God has given us. That's a valuable thing. It's how we're able to function. And he's given every single born-again believer a spiritual gift. Uh, Number three, he's given us physical possessions. Uh, We have a building 
as a church, this is a possession of the church. We know it's the Lord's, but it's, it's our building. Uh, he's given me a house. He's given me a car. Uh, he's given me clothes. All kinds of physical things that we own, he's given them to us. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. He's given us our time, our 24 hours a day for as many years as he gives us. He's given us the church as an organism. This, this is not just a collection of people. This is God's, this is part of the body of Christ and it functions. And, and I, we could just make this as broad to say he's given anything that's under your power. Whatever is under your power, your ability, uh, your influence, whatever it is, he's given that all to you. And, And I mention all of those to come back to this point. Faithful servants. The question we're asking today is, are you a faithful servant? If you're a believer in Christ, you are a servant. But in that illustration, there were faithful and unfaithful servants. Faithful servants say, this is whatever I have, all of these things are from Christ. And he's given them to me so I can make an increase with them. The unfaithful servant here took what he was given and wrapped it up and sat on it like a, like a guard at Fort Knox. Nobody gets in, nobody goes out. It's just there. And that's the unfaithful servant. The faithful one said, said this, uh, you know, uh, Paul, Paul put it this way, let a man consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in a steward that you be found faithful. God has said, there are some things I want you to do. I want you to use what I've given you. One of the real challenges we face in American Christianity is consumerism. We've been able to develop in America the ministry to such a level that people shop for the best quality of programming like a consumer rather than like a servant who is tasked to make an increase for the master. Oh, I like that ministry. Oh, I like that one. Oh, I love this thing over here. Oh, I've got to have some of that. Oh, I don't like that. And in the broader American church, that's how we approach church. We say, God has given me something that I'm going to hang on to, and I'm going to get some more of it whenever I can, and I'm just going to enjoy it. And it's going to be right here, and it's going to be mine. But that's not a faithful servant. A faithful servant says, God has given me something so that I can give it out and make an increase for him. I don't know if you have a, a note where you work. You know, there's notifications. You know, uh, OSHA and, and WISHA and, uh, you know, the minimum wage. All those official notifications on that bulletin board at work. I don't know if you've seen this one. To all employees, due to increased competition and a keen desire to remain in business we find it necessary to institute a new policy. Effective immediately, we find we must ask that somewhere between starting time and quitting time, and without infringing too much on the time usually devoted to lunch period, coffee breaks, rest period, storytelling, ticket telling, 
ticket selling, golfing, auto racing, sporting events, vacation, and the rehashing of yesterday's TV programs, that each employee endeavor to find some time that can be set aside to be known as a work break. Now, to some, this may seem a radical innovation, but we honestly believe the idea has great possibilities. It can be an aid to steady employment, and it might also be a means of assuring regular paychecks. While the work break adoption plan is not compulsory, it is hoped that each employee will find enough time to give the plan a fair trial. It's also hoped that those employees not in favor of adopting the work break idea will have fully completed their vacation plans. I, honestly, I think one of the challenges for us as Christians in America is we, we approach Christianity as something to receive, not something to use. For sure there are great blessings that come to us. Um, spiritual blessings do produce enjoyment many times. But the goal is never our enjoyment as a consumer but our use of God's gifts as a servant to him. Faithful servants understand that Christ has entrusted us with his valuables so that we might make an increase for him. Number two, faithful servants recognize the right of Christ to demand our diligent service. Look at Luke 19, verse 12. Certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants. He delivered to them the money and he said, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and they sent the delegation after him saying, We will not have this man reign over us. It's almost, it's almost comical if you get that mental image Here's the nobleman. He gets on his mule or whatever with his entourage and starts heading out of town. And here come the citizens after him. Hey, you're never going to be our king. Just want you to know that. We hate you. That's what you call burning your bridges. Because if he manages to come back and be the king, you're going to be in deep weeds. And in fact, that's what we see. He said, servants, do business till I come. But these people hated him. So we have people that hate him, people that accepted the responsibility from him, and one guy kind of in the middle. The citizens refused to recognize his right to rule. Faithful people don't argue with the lordship of Christ. Faithful people don't argue with the lordship of Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul was on the hating side, and then he became, he became on the serving side in time. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I, let me just paraphrase it, I hated Christ. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But now, since I've stopped hating him, I started loving him, I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me.
Christian, are you one who is happy to believe in Christ as Savior from hell, but refuse to submit to him as Lord? One of the great questions we have to answer, I don't know, I've never, trying to think now, make sure I say, the, say an honest thing, I've never heard a Christian say they want to go to hell. I, I might have heard a couple of unbelievers say that. Yeah, all my friends are going to be there. Well, that's probably true. I don't know of anybody who wants to go to hell. I, I, most every Christian I know of is very glad to be going to heaven. But when it comes to the issue of lordship, does Jesus get to direct my life? Well, just, just back that train up a little bit. Somehow we have to come to recognize this truth. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God. We have got to come to grips with the fact that we are servants of God. If we have accepted his salvation, we are his servants, and he has the right to say, this is what I want you to be doing with your life. Number three, faithful servants do their best. This is the encouraging part of this message today and the encouraging part of this, of this parable. Did you notice that the servant who made a five-fold increase was not chastised or criticized or compared to the servants who made a ten-fold increase? Now, it says that he did this with, uh, verse 13, ten of his servants... We only get the report from three. And I think that's because they were typical. One of them was a super achiever or an extra hard worker. We don't know. Maybe he was naturally brilliant. And he took that one and made a tenfold increase. Another guy took one and made a fivefold increase. And there's no criticism to the one who made the fivefold increase. God knows what he's left with you. I understand that there's a sense in which God has left the same thing with all of us. He's left all of us the word. He's left all of us the church. He's left all of us a spiritual gift. But perhaps that's where things differ a little bit. He's given some people some spiritual gifts, some people another. Um, some people have the benefit of certain aspects of uh, education and training in their upbringing. I've known some folks who came to the Lord late in life, and one of them said, I, I, I've lost so many years. I, I need to make up time. And I think there's probably a sense in which that person won't be a 10-pound receiver, maybe a 5, maybe a 1. But there's no criticism given. And that needs to be an encouragement to us because this is God's standard. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Whether, whether you look like you're making a tenfold impact or maybe you look like a fivefold impact or maybe one, the question is not, am I doing as much as that person or that person or that person? The question is, Am I doing my best? Honestly, I think that's a harder standard sometimes. Wouldn't it be great if God just gave us a list? Do these ten things, then you're done for the day. But no, he says, do your best. 
Do your best with your time. Do your best with the word. Do your best with your spiritual gift. Do your best. Do you remember the woman who poured the oil on Jesus' feet? Do you remember what the perfume was worth? A year's wages. If we're using our $3,000 a month thing, then that's $36,000. She came and poured $36,000 on the feet of Jesus. I've never written a check that big to the Lord's work. I don't know if I'll ever be able to. And do you know what Jesus said? She has done what she could. She could do this. It was a good thing. People were criticizing her for pouring this out on Jesus. He says, hey, cut it out. She did what she could. But do you remember this event? Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and he, and he saw how the people put money in the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. And then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrans. And I tried to figure out exactly how much money this was, but it's just a diddly little bit. I mean, even in their scale of money, it's not much. Two mites, which makes a quadrans. So he called his disciples to himself and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. She did her best. Now, God doesn't say you've got to put in your whole livelihood. He doesn't say that. But he says, are you doing your best? A faithful servant does his or her best. The servant in Luke 19 failed, get this, because he didn't try. He didn't try. He wasn't criticized for what he did. He was criticized for doing nothing. God says, get out there and try with what I've given you. That's what I want from my faithful servants. Number four, faithful servants don't delay obedience. Do you remember this from the life of Christ? When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe, came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, talking about himself, has nowhere to lay his head. I don't own a house. Then another of his disciples came and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, You follow me, and you let the dead bury their own dead. Now, was this man's father already dead and they were like waiting to have the funeral till he could get home that day? No. This man said, I have obligations. I'm a son. I have to take care of my dad. Now someday when my dad dies, then I will come and follow you. Jesus said, follow me, period. We say, wow, that's kind of harsh. The attitude that enables delay in faithfulness is based on an unlimited human control of time. Look at this passage. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such such a city, we'll spend a year there, we'll buy and sell, we'll make a profit, 
Whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears in little time, uh, for a little time, then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. But now you boast. You boast in your control of time, in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not to him, it is sin. In this illustration, he's talking about uh, trusting God in general, and he says there's a tendency in our lives to say, well, I've got to get my day timer out, and tomorrow this, and the next day that, and the next month this, and the next month that, and, you know, out there I'm going to do something for the Lord. And what the Lord says is, faithful servants don't delay because you don't know how many days you have left. You don't. Now, that's not to be morbid. It's to be obedient, to say, God wants me to be busy. In the illustration that we looked at from Luke 19, this man goes away, and he doesn't say, I'm coming back in three months and two days. He says, I'm going to go away, I'm going to receive the kingdom, and I'm going to come back. And you should be doing business till I come. That's what Jesus has done with us. He says, I've given you some things. You need to be busy. You need to be faithfully using those things for me till I come. Because we don't control our lives or the lives of other, others, God wants us to be industriously busy in his work. As with the servants in Jesus' story, we have to eat and sleep and love our families. But those normal activities of life cannot take the place of making spiritual increase for God. Remember the unfaithful servant. He made sure to treat the treasure like a treasure, but that wasn't what God wanted. God wanted him to treat the treasure like something to use to be productive. In John 15, Jesus said it this way, Here's how my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. Number five, faithful servants will be rewarded. In the parable, um, a parable of Christ, each servant was rewarded according to how he managed the resources entrusted to him. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, please. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11. First Corinthians 3.11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's talking about the ministry, and he's talking about our lives, and he says the foundation of everything we do for the Lord is faith in Christ. It's being born again. No other foundation can be laid which is Jesus, other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Sounds very much like what happened in the parable with Jesus. 
this servant was not cast out. He was not put to death like those who hated Christ. But what he had was taken away. The treasure he had was taken away and given to the others. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he will be saved. So as through fire. God is not saying you're going to go to hell if you misuse the things that he's put in your hand. But he is saying there will be a day of accounting. There will be a day when the grades are looked at to see how you've done with what you've received. He says it's possible to build with gold, silver, precious stone. It's possible wood, hay, and straw. One is burned up by fire and one is not. The Apostle Paul enlarged on this in 2 Corinthians when he said this, We are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We believe what God has told us about being busy for him. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The Apostle Paul, if, if we compare this to the, to the illustration that Christ used, he said, look, I know that Christ is coming back and he's going to inspect my work. Therefore, while he's gone, I'm busy making money for him, spiritual money, if you will. I'm taking what he's given and I'm doing my best to persuade men. While I don't believe that I live this out perfectly, I'm standing here trying to persuade men. <laughs> In other words, it's my job to say, hey, Christ is coming back and he's going to inspect and you need to be busy for him and I need to be busy for him. I need to consider how I use what God has given me in my role and you need to consider yours. Because... The day of evaluation. This judgment seat is not a judgment of whether you go to heaven or not. There is a judgment seat like that for unbelievers. But this judgment seat is literally called the Bema seat or the reward seat. It's taken off of the reward seat at the Olympics, the original Olympics, when the athletes would come forward and receive their reward. It's a recognition of what has been done. And of course, the when God goes to evaluate us and applies the fire of his vision, some of that is going to be burned up, the wood, hay, straw. Some of it will survive the gaze of his righteousness, and there will be a reward. What kind of a reward is it going to be? Well, the scripture makes several references to a crown, to God giving us a crown. Let me just look at this one scripture as typical of those. Do you not know who the, those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Therefore, run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes in the Olympics is temperate in all things. Those who compete for the prize is temperate. Now they do it in the Olympics to obtain a perishable crown. The crown they would give them was laurel leaves woven into a crown. It literally would fall apart in time. You could also look at the gold of the Olympic medal today, which is also subject to decay on some level. What he's saying is, in the secular world, they're trying to get something that perishes, but we, 
will receive an imperishable crown. Near as I can figure from studying the scripture, the crowns are God's way of recognizing what we do for him. And there are several specific ones. And then the coolest thing about the crowns is that in the book of Revelation, it says that we will throw our crowns at his feet in worship. Because once we get to heaven, we will be able to see even more clearly than we do now and we'll look back at our life and go, the only reason I did anything for you is that you were in me motivating and helping and encouraging. And so whatever I did belongs to you. And how great to have something to throw at his feet. And how empty to be empty-handed. At college graduations, they recognized the effort of those who worked the hardest with honors. And they come with the Latin words, cum laude, that means with honor, magna cum laude, which means with much honor, and then summa cum laude, with highest honor. And that's based on grade point averages, essentially. I'm pretty sure that I graduated thank the Lottie. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Yeah. <laughs> At God's graduation ceremony, it's not going to be about what your grade point average was, but about how faithful you were in using what he gave you for his profit. And because of that... <laughs> We can all graduate summa cum laude if we're faithful servants. Heavenly Father, help us. Mm. It's so easy to, to enjoy the benefits of salvation and to not take seriously the responsibilities of the Christian life. To be productive for you. Help us to be faithful servants. I pray in Christ's name, amen.